Hi there. I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent, feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome, everyone, to the Love Capades podcast. Love Capades, Learning How to Love and Be Loved. It's Valentine's Day 2019, and yet again, I don't have a sweetie with whom to spoon and swoon. That's disappointing because I have a big dose of Cupid in my DNA and believe love in all its forms is the essential component of the cosmos. Hearts are my favorite symbol. I scribble them. I collect them. I sticker them. I wear them. I love them. Like my mom before me, I cry at even remotely mushy movies. It's my true belief that the only doorway to happiness is through the heart, our surest compass to navigate the roadway of love. So for someone with such a nature, I've had a rather unusual love history. For most ladies of my vintage, the predictable pattern was grow up, find a husband, and make a family. For better or worse, for the long haul or the short, that was what you did. Except I didn't. After a lot of head shrinking, I can't explain why exactly, although I have many good theories. But my path was different, and some might say more interesting. Throughout the decades, there have been serious love affairs, silly ones, naughty ones, all sandwiched by various flings, flirtations, and titillating moments. It's very true that I enjoy the company of interesting men. I like sex and love a good necking session. One can never get enough quality kissing. But what is also true is that I have not yet found, or better yet, been found by, the love of my life or soulmate. The man who would care for me in the way I want to be cared for and whom I can adore similarly in return. One of my gifted therapists along the trail told me something which stuck to my psyche like wise wallpaper. A woman gets to choose her man, but only from those who choose her. Think about it. The most successful and enduring love relationships start with the man more smitten than the woman. Once the man has conquered his love target, his interest often wanes, whereas the lady falls more in love with intimacy and time. Rare is the love match which lasts and remains mutually intense. As for my choices on the journey of love, they're a kaleidoscope of colorful episodes. A few of them are long and winding, some are staccato points, and others are nomadic detours. To this day, many make me laugh or smile, and others make me cry and wonder, what was I thinking? I confess that one of the main reasons I'm revealing these secrets of the heart is to create a vibration that will attract love into my orbit once again. And this time, the sort of love that is fervent and mutual, ardent yet tender, a go-to-the-mat, goosebumpy type of love the kind I've waited an eternity to experience. So please hop on the love train with me as we travel the uncommon, 
excursion of my heart. First chapter is called Home Run. My very first real boyfriend appeared when I was a freshman in high school, and he was a sophomore. Bobby had the serious hots for me from the minute he saw me at campus, and he followed me around like a lovesick pup. He'd tail me in the school hallways, follow me home on the bus, and call me during dinner time, all which embarrassed me to no end. This pursuit also made me nervous, but he's always been one of those guys who loves women, and we all know how bewitching that can be. It was his persistence and refusal to be rebuffed that eventually put me under his spell. Finally, I capitulated and agreed to go with him to a dance at Christmas time. I remember exactly what I wore, a red organza frock with scoop neckline and dyed to match heels and purse. Quite fetching. Believe it or not, I still have the purse. There was lots of dancing. I'd had many ballroom dance lessons, as was the fashion in those days. And then came the moment of goodbye at the front door. I was staying overnight at a girlfriend's house. Bobby walked me up the long pathway, lingered on the stoop, and then leaned in to kiss me on the lips. Only 13 at the time, I didn't know how to handle this surprise kiss. My passion for kissing kicked in later. After the front door closed, I did a fake wretch with full sound effects, and then panicked that he may have heard my reaction. If so, it didn't seem to quash his ardor. Despite the inauspicious start, Bobby and I dated all through high school. We were pretty much inseparable. And from the get-go, Bobby pressured me to go all the way with him, as we called having sex in those days. This was totally unimaginable to me. However, he was relentless, so my strong conviction ultimately went poof in the face of his considerable charms. The guilt that ensued after losing my virginity at age 14 weighed upon me for decades, and I had no one I could confess my sins to. Not until I was a senior did I feel brave enough to tell Patsy, my closest girlfriend. It was shameful to have sex so young in my day, whereas now it's almost a badge of honor. Those were certainly different times than these. Luckily, there were also some funny aspects to this teenage sexploitation. Bobby was so proud of his love conquest that he kept all the empty boxes of Trojan condoms, like trophies, in his desk at home. Figuring there'd be no curious eyes, he'd staked out a favorite naughty go-all-the-way spot in a nearby neighborhood where new houses were under construction. There were other sites, too. The Stanford Cactus Gardens were a favorite necking destination. Hazardous, though, as the police often patrolled and would shine a huge flashlight into the car. Those were cringe-worthy moments. Even more harrowing were the times he'd take me to his own house when the family was out and scurry me back to his bedroom for a quickie. Good grief, Gertie. I'll never forget the time he picked me up at the beauty parlor after I'd had my hair done. Then he drove me promptly out to an abandoned road off the freeway so he could dip his pen in my inkwell. Once Bobby returned me home, I was in a total dither, thinking my mother would find it odd that my fresh hairdo was so askew, or should I say a screw? And then there were all the nights we got carried away on the green couch in our family room while watching the Johnny Carson show. My father would invariably storm down the hallway and interrupt the festivities. 
In spite of all this hanky-panky, my father actually liked Bobby a lot, even though I'm sure he suspected we'd crossed the Emily Post line of propriety. One of the reasons they got along so well is that both were extremely funny. Plus, we all shared a love of sports, especially baseball. Bobby played baseball, my brother played baseball, and my uncle had a box behind home plate at Candlestick Park. Many a game, we all watched Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Orlando Cepeda, and the rest of that talented San Francisco Giants team. I bring this up because years later, I found in Bobby's effects a little black book. You know the kind. But his had a special twist. By each girl's contact info was a baseball diamond filled in to the base Bobby had reached with her. Honest to God. I mean, you have to admit it's pretty clever. It surely demonstrated proof of his womanizing and comedic tendencies. A few more recollections float to the top of my memory pool from this early era. On many occasions, Bobby and I would be hanging out in the high school library when he would announce that we'd get married when we graduated. Mary, I'd exclaim, are you kidding? You're going in the army and I'm going to Stanford. Clearly different future visions. Truth told, Bobby was smart, but academically lazy. Eventually, after his stint in the army, he went to college, graduated, and later became successful in the journalism field. One happy memory is Bobby's sparkling smile, which he beamed when I opened our front door after I'd been away for Easter vacation. My mother's well-heeled relatives in Southern California owned an amazing Victorian cottage right on the ocean in Laguna Beach, just a few steps up the street from the historic Laguna Hotel. A few weeks of the year, our family got to use the place. Some of the quirkiest, most joyful moments of my life happened there. The cottage was filled to the rafters with molten family memorabilia, collections of seashells harvested along the beach, and albums with old photos. The master bedroom was on the seaside and featured a large bay window. The kitchen, on the other hand, was a limited space typical of vacation homes of the era. But the adjoining dining room with its long table and many chairs had hosted generations of happy family meals. Perhaps best of all was the covered porch that overlooked the Pacific Ocean with a view of Catalina Island. This particular visit was the year the movie Psycho came out, 1960. I remember because we all went to the theater in nearby Costa Mesa and watched Hitchcock's iconic horror film. Who could forget that? What was also memorable when I look back is that Bobby actually sent me letters during this week. Sweet adolescent love notes. What was on his mind, aside from missing me, was that he was about to get his braces off after a too long period of middle mouth. He hated those braces, and I wasn't too fond of them either. They were bad for kissing. So when I got home, he appeared at my doorstep almost immediately. I opened the door, and there he was with the broadest, shiniest smile I have ever seen. I'll always remember it because I did a deep swoon right there on the spot. On the darker side of the moon, a very unsettling episode happened toward the end of our high school romance. 
With so much clandestine screwing around, even with all those Trojans, one time my period was very late. Needless to say, the two of us, plus his BFF Ross, whom he'd clued in, were frantic. I, of course, had no one with whom to share my predicament. There is little scarier to a teenage girl than thinking you may be pregnant. Reputation aside, my future plans would be toast and my parents would be furious. Primal scream on steroids. This torture lasted for what seemed forever until my zillionth visit to the bathroom signaled the crisis was over. It was one of many times that I looked heavenward and said thank you. In retrospect, I realized that long stretch of years dating Bobby was gratifying in a way that relationships are meant to be. Everyone knew we were a couple, and I always knew who my honey was. No scrambling around for a date to parties or school functions. I really did love meeting up with him between classes in the hall, although I never let him hold my hand, which totally frustrated him. I must have gotten that silly modesty quirk from my mother. I loved watching him play baseball and basketball, and our family all enjoyed spending time together at sporting events. One time, he and his buddies hauled a goalpost they'd torn down all the way to our house from a Stanford football game. We used that post as a backstop for our backyard shuttleboard court for years. In many ways, Bobby had become part of the family. So it was hard for all of us when I broke up with him as he graduated and left for the Army. I was sure that our paths had veered in different directions by then, and the time had come to make it official. Before leaving the stories from my high school years, there are a few postscripts to squeeze in Opre Bobby. Senior year, our girlfriend gang got quite rambunctious. For the most part, we were all bright college-bound girls with bubble hairdos from nice families with a penchant for fun. We cruised the Menlo College campus and the Stanford campus to find what trouble we could, and it worked. On the Menlo campus, we found a clique of rich, sunny, dispositioned surfer boys from Southern California. Hap was their ringleader, blonde, rangy, and definitely game for some girl time. We dated in sort of a gang fashion, much in the manner of later generations. It was fun and innocent. A little more on the wild side were our forays onto the Stanford campus. We'd cruise up and down the strip called Fraternity Row. One of the cool frats was the Beta Chi Omega House, Betas for short. On a certain fateful afternoon, they took advantage of our naivete and got us but good with a memorable prank. There were five or six of us, the number which could cram into one car, and the baits, or should I call them beasts, told us to line up in front of their antebellum front door so they could snap our photo. What a bait and switch. The next thing we knew, huge tubs of very cold, grotty water cascaded from the balcony above. We were soaked and sorry, but I admit a little proud to report our experience back at school the next day. On one of our expeditions to Stanford, I actually met a very nice young man named Chet, and he asked me for my phone number. When he called to invite me out for a real date, I was thrilled and terrified at the same time. He arrived to pick me up looking like the quintessential Stanford man, a perfect crew cut on his blonde locks, a crisp white button-down shirt, Levi's, 
and broken in leather loafers with no socks. When I opened the door, I could see his two-door maroon roadster parked along the curb in front of our house. It was like a dream until something happened that has left a scar on my heart to this day. My parents and I were all standing in the entry hall as I nervously introduced Chet to them. After all, dating Bobby had become so comfortable compared to going out with a real, live, fresh-faced fraternity guy. My father then said, Be home by midnight, fat girl. I wanted to disappear into the ether and never return. My dad had many nicknames for me, and he'd chosen the one that would embarrass me beyond measure. I've pondered many times over the years if this was a purposeful way of keeping men at bay, or was it an inadvertent slip of the tongue? I will never know. But it's important for me to say this. My father never encouraged me to marry and have a family of my own. Instead, he raised me as if I were the eldest son, destined to make a mark on society. He groomed me to be a liberated woman before women's lib was a thing. By the way, as you might guess, sadly, my date with Chet was to be our one and only. Thankfully, there is one more saga, a happy one from my teenage years, which I can't resist sharing. Bobby had graduated and enlisted in the Army, and it was still my senior year. Left on my own for the first time since starting high school, I began to date a new fellow, Mark O'Reilly. He sat behind me in English class and was a lanky, shy kid with a kind of deer-in-the-headlights expression, a far cry from the lady killer Bobby. As it was our final year, I got to invite three of my girlfriends and four guy friends to spend a week during another Easter break at the Laguna Beach Cottage. This was considered a coveted invite amongst my circle. Because we were dating, Mark got one of the tickets to ride. My mother and Pete Klein's mother, Mary, were the two chaperones. God bless their brave hearts. The week was filled with teenage pranks and other mischievous behavior. The little jewel box of a house sat 78 rickety wooden steps above the pearly sand. During the day, we frolicked on the beach, getting way too sunburned for current day standards, using copper tone rather than sunscreen, which wasn't even a twinkle in any dermatologist's eyes in those days. After dinner and the sun had set, the gang headed back down those steps. But under the cover of dark, Cliff Gamble would haul his old leather suitcase down the stairs filled with beer, acquired God knows how. We thought we were so clever. But every morning at breakfast, Mom and Mary would inquire why the garbage can on the street side of the property was filled with empty beer cans. Blank stares around the table. One night, this nocturnal charade reached a crescendo. By this time, it had become clear that Mark had not done much drinking and he was making up for lost time by getting drunk every single night. Each year in the spring and early summer in Southern California, there is an awe-inducing wildlife display along the coastline when the grunion are running. These silvery little fish emerge from the ocean to spawn at night, making the shore appear to shimmer with glitter. It's a much-beloved tradition to watch as thousands of shiny fish flop onto the sand and lay their eggs. Midweek, we got notice the grunion were making an appearance that night. 
The gang of eight was reveling around the bonfire when the fish began to arrive. At the same time, my mother and Mary came walking down the beach, having taken the city side route rather than the stairs. All of a sudden, wild man Mark ran down to the surf to pick up the arriving ladies. He was so blotto that he didn't recognize who they were. In spite of being mightily embarrassed, we all had a very hearty laugh as we gathered together to watch the fluorescent fish do their thing. After this crazy episode, Mark's drunken shenanigans continued. One night, all eight of us piled into the Musi family Dodge station wagon, a salmon and white vehicle with giant fins as at the back end. A real stunner. We headed for the local drive-in movie theater to watch Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Drive-ins were ubiquitous in those days and an ever-popular place for teenagers to go for serious necking sessions. The leather suitcase accompanied us, of course, and Mark was imbibing his usual quota. These outdoor theaters were typically patrolled by a man with a big flashlight in an attempt to curtail lascivious behavior. When the attendant, wearing a white coat as if he were the doctor of propriety, arrived at our car, Mark started yelling at him. It's the Scarlet Pimpernel! Honest to heaven. We'd been reading the book in English class that semester. Needless to say, the outburst instantly got us kicked out of the theater. No more birds for us. Many more pranks ensued that wondrous week, but you get the idea. It does my soul good to recall these innocent, pubescent days. Wouldn't it be the bomb if life continued to be so carefree? So, Michelle, thank you for that. That was just incredible. I mean, you know I've read the book and I know these stories, but somehow hearing them every time brings them so to life. I feel like I'm there. So thank you so much. So I have a couple questions, though. Are you open to that? Absolutely. I know you did this in what you read to us, but I need a little more detail. If you could paint the picture for us, what those times were like, being a teenager, what were the mores around sex and the use of birth control or not? Just fill that in a little bit for us. Well, I went to high school in the 60s, and I went to a high school in Atherton, California. And there was absolutely no license to have sex. You could neck and kiss and carry on like that, but it was definitely not expected that a nice girl, anyway, would have anything to do with sex. It was just verboten. There was no, you just didn't consider it. And so no birth control. <laughs> was that something you knew or was it something the boys of the time typically knew? Tell, tell me how that worked. Well, I'm sure it was not something I knew. And how he got them, you know, when he was a sophomore in high school or junior in high school, I don't know. But anyway, he used a lot of them. And as I said, he was so charming and so persistent that he beat me down. And I was only 14. And I carried that scarlet letter in my heart for literally the longest time. It really affected my life. Well, it affected your life that you lost your virginity at a young age to him, yet you continued, in your words, your shenanigans. So how did you navigate 
that tear within yourself that you felt guilty but also wanted to continue? What was going on with you? Well, we were a couple, and I adored him. He's very charming, very funny, very popular, played basketball, played baseball. He was the funny guy in the class ahead of me, and we were a known couple. So I had said yes, so I wasn't going to say un-yes, and it went on for three years. (laughs) Well, I wanted to say that it's a relationship that, as you hear the rest of the book, you'll realize has lasted to this day in one form or another. And then tell me a little bit more about your family and your relationship to your dad. I mean, I get that they really liked Bobby, but you infer that your dad at least sensed or knew what was going on, yet that didn't stop him from putting a stop to it or confront you? I mean, how did you hide it so well? (laughs) Well, he never asked me outright. He never said, you know, you can't have sex, blah, 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 blah. I think he must have suspected because Bobby was around all the time. So he would storm down the hallway while we were watching the Johnny Carson show and necking up a storm on the green couch. And this happened repeatedly. So I'm sure my father knew what was up. So, you know, I just can only imagine how terrified you were and how alone you felt when you feared you were pregnant. Talk about that a little bit more. I was totally scared shitless. I mean, I just could see my whole future going up in smoke. And I couldn't share it with anybody because of the shame. I mean, I could talk about it with Bobby, but... You know, I couldn't talk about it with anybody else, not my parents, not my best friend. And it went on for quite a while until that wonderful moment when I discovered I wasn't pregnant. So, yeah, it was something that was indelible in my memory. A very difficult thing to deal with. So something else that really struck me in the book is when Bobby announces that you're going to be married and your reaction. I mean... You also speak to us about your father, kind of his attitude in raising you was never really that you were going to be the marrying type yet. That sounds to me like that was very different than the way other girls during that time and age were raised. So I can only imagine that brought up some kind of a dichotomy inside you. You you wanted love so badly, yet your own dad was not seeing you as the marriage type. So talk a little bit more about that dichotomy, and if I'm right in reading into that, it could have struck something in you that was a pull or a tension. Well, let me tell you a cute little story. So my father went to Stanford. He was from a very poor immigrant family, but he managed to get himself to Stanford. And so he raised his children in such a way that he expected both me and my younger brother to end up at Stanford. And of course, we lived around the corner. So His mother lived in Palo Alto still, and every Sunday we would drive over to pick her up and bring her over to our house for dinner. So coming and going, my father would drive both of us through the campus and give us this Chamber of Commerce pitch about why we should go to Stanford. And I was to be one of the cheerleaders, and my brother was to be the quarterback on the football team. So it was so... (laughs) present in our experience. And so I followed that path and did what I was supposed to and was able to get into Stanford. My brother, who was at least as smart as I was, but lazy as hell, did not get into Stanford. And so 
I followed my father's lead. He was a very charismatic man. We had a complicated relationship, but I was going to do what daddy wanted me to do. And he never gave me the program about that most girls got, which was grew up, you got married, as I said in the very first paragraph of the book, and you had children. That was what you did. But I didn't. But it also sounds very loving and wonderful and ahead of his time in a way that he expected more of you. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I look back on my life and my relationship with my fascinating father, and you're totally right. He was so ahead of his time. And so I became a women's liver before there was such a thing. Ahead of his time and as lovable as he appears in what you've already given us, he said something to you that you admit was hurtful for years. So tell us a little bit more about this other side of your dad and how that affected you. Well, he... And I hate to repeat it, but what he called you, what he said, the fat girl? I mean, awful. Well, that was one of his nicknames for me. And I don't know if he said it on purpose, which he may very well have done, or if it just slipped out. But it was one of the most mortifying moments of my entire life. I still cringe to this day when I think about it. And I never had the foresight to ask him what the hell he was doing and why he did it. But it was very hurtful. My father was complicated, too. He was difficult. How about your mom? Tell us a little bit about her. She kind of appears a little bit here, but not in as much detail as stuff around your dad's. Tell us about your relationship to your mom. Well, my mother was very beautiful. And there is a story I tell later in the book that is classic. She was very beautiful. She was a very nice woman. My father adored her and thought that I'm sure that he'd married up. And she was a little bit jealous of me because when I came along, she had been the center of my father's eye and he kind of had to split his love. So she was a little bit pissed at me. She was also very prudish. So I kind of got that imprint from her. She was from an elegant family, a well-to-do family. My father was from a poor family. They were different in that way. But my father was a very charismatic guy. And my mother adored him and she he adored her. Was some of the prudishness that you're referring to what caused some of the terrible guilt you had that you lost your virginity so early? Did that feed into that? Well, probably. She she didn't even want to talk about the subject of sex. There was no discussing that. You certainly could not turn to her when you found yourself almost pregnant then. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Definitely not. So the other question I wanted to ask you, this is changing gears a little bit, but the short episode that you already read to us includes many more than one man already, and you're still quite young. So I'm going to throw you an interesting one. Did you ever develop a type that you were attracted to? <laughs> <laughs> a type. Well, I can describe my perfect physical type. I like tall, six feet, a little more. I like men with dark hair and blue eyes. That's my perfect type. So how did the blonde fit in? <laughs> you mean the fraternity boy? Yeah. With the blonde crew cut? He was a Stanford man. I'm not going to say no to that when I'm a fresh when I'm okay. a senior in high school. He he was adorable. I'm asking partly because I'm back to something you really got me with when you talked about your therapist saying to you once 
when you get married, make sure the man chooses you and not you. Because sometimes in the listening of what you read to me and us, it sounded like you would go for someone who was really into you. And I don't know if it always mattered if it fit your perfect type or not. Is that fair to say? I think that is very fair to say, Sally. So in the case of Bobby, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. And he was so freaking persistent. He wasn't taking no for an answer. And so ultimately, the answer became yes. And actually, since you brought it up, Sally, that's true most of my life. I might not be so interested in a guy, but if he is dead set to get me, he usually got me. I have an important question to wrap things up, and that is one of the things I love about this segment and the whole book is really that every love capade that you tell us, whether it landed as a sex capade or not, brings you up as an endless romantic. You really were entering each love capade with the energy as if this could be the one each time. And it's titillating and it's fun. And that's partly why it's so delicious. Well, you're so sweet to say that. And I think you're absolutely right. I am a dyed-in-the-wool romantic. I love, as I said in that first part of the book, the heart is my favorite symbol, and it represents love to me. And I think love is the central thing about anybody's life. And the one of the great ironies of my life, of course, is I didn't find my soulmate yet. <laughs> I keep, I'm, see, I'm still hopeful. This whole idea of you trying to create a vibration of love that continues past the writing of this book is a wonderful theme that I'd love to revisit in later episodes as well. Yeah, well, I'm sure we will. And, you know, it's something that I share with the audience, the vibration of love and in all of its forms and how precious that is right now at a time in our history where love seems to be hiding a bit. I cannot wait to hear more. And if I feel that way, I can only imagine the listeners will as well. Well, Sally, stay tuned, baby. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by Studio Pod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com.